The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, soldiers of Christ, if you would please take your swords of the Spirit and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to see again God's kingdom that we've been learning about this past week. Over three days in this room here, there was a lot of wonderful teaching and all around this campus going forth about the kingdom of God and how sinners can meet a holy God through what King Jesus did and who he is. And we're going to see in this passage in Exodus 19, the Old Testament coming of God as the king of Israel to meet his people who will serve him as priests, but they need to get ready. They need to prepare the way for his coming. They need to prepare themselves. Exodus 19, verse 6. God says to Israel, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. Commanded him, and all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman, that means sexually. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Sometimes I'll begin our time with a story, and I want to begin with a story this morning, but it's it's really the story of stories, not just from history, it's it's his story. Thousands of years ago, the Lord God created a holy and perfect world. It was a wonderful world. It was a world where he actually came and walked with man in the cool of the day, in the garden. But you know that story that Satan fell and Satan came down to earth and and he tempted 
Eve in the garden with the fruit. And she said to him, God told us to not eat it and not even to touch it lest we die. But she ate and Adam ate and they died spiritually that day and they physically could no longer live in God's holy presence in that garden and to make sure they would not come near lest they die. There was an angel stationed at the entrance with a flaming holy sword to, to keep man out from the presence of God there in the garden. But God graciously did not end humanity as their sin deserved. And even as he had warned them, he, he was going to come down. He was going to come down again to man. But think about his presence where it began in the beginning. Eden is described as a place where there's these four rivers of water running down from. And so Eden is a, is a mount. It's higher than the rest of the land and the garden because these rivers are coming out of the presence of God and they are flowing down. And so God's presence started at a mount. Man was sent down and out in his sin, but God is going to come Again, and in, in what we're going to read and what we just read here and what we're going to see is that God is saving and taking man to another mount, the Mount Sinai. This is all part of his plan, but it is still not safe to approach God's holy presence as he comes down again to earth. Any unauthorized entry will lead to your death. It says those who enter will be shot. And just in case you're wondering, that's not by gun, that's by arrows. But this holy God comes and he's going to take Israel, even as they're sinful people who he saved and brought out of Egypt now, he's going to take them to his presence, back up. But he needs to make a way that they can. And that's what he's doing here. This is the the language of a, this whole passage is the language of a king meeting with his people and establishing a covenant with them, and this king is actually saving his people to be in his royal family. He wants them to be royal priests, that's what he calls them at the start of the passage, to to tell the world, to tell others in the world how they as sinners can approach a holy God, how they can actually be with this holy God. That's the big picture in redemptive history, and and that's the, the big point in God rescuing Israel out of Egypt. He says in Exodus 9, 16, it's that my name and my power would be proclaimed to all the earth. And so his name, Yahweh's name being proclaimed to the earth is his aim in the Exodus. And that's the mission and the the main point of this passage And he's going to use his people, believers, our priests, and are to be holy as God is holy. That's the proposition or the big idea. And under that, we're going to see a royal priesthood of believers. This is God's mission for Old Testament Israel, but also for us in the New Testament. And God's call to be holy as he is holy. And this is really going to set the tone for the rest of the books of Moses But starting in verse 6, God tells Old Testament Israel, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And last time we looked at 1 Peter 2 where, where God tells believers, You are a royal priesthood. You are a a holy nation. He's speaking to New Testament believers 
Not that we're Israel's replacement, not that we're a geopolitical nation like we see in Exodus 19, but we are grafted into his one people, and as that holy nation Israel was to be, all believers are to be a royal, holy priesthood. Under Moses, God would later establish a priesthood. He hasn't done that yet. It would be through the line of Aaron, through the tribe of Levi, those who would serve, and there were different ones who would serve different parts of God's presence. But here in Exodus 19, all of God's people, all of the kingdom of Israel were to be priests. It wasn't one holy tribe within Israel when he began here. It was to be a holy nation of Israel for every every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, like we sang earlier. That was his plan. God chose the Jews to be his royal priesthood. Last time we saw in Revelation 1 and Revelation 5, it says Jesus makes us, makes believers in him to be priests. Revelation 20 verse 6 says in the end, they will be, quote, priests of God and Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. I think this whole idea of being a priest is, is not something that a lot of us think about often, that we're actually to be priests of God. We don't wear white collars. We don't wear black clothes like some of us when we hear of a, a priest. That's what we think of. But First Peter 2 says we're all to be priests. In the dark ages of professing Christianity, the priests were only men who were single. That does not fit even the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. As Aaron and his sons were married, First, Peter, First Timothy 4 actually predicts in later days there's going to be a departure from the faith with men who forbid marriage. That's a departure from the faith and it's a serious damage and distortion and deception has come from that But Roman Catholicism has tried to be a a replacement in every way of all the things that priests did through their clergy. So the tabernacle, incense, holy water, and, and most notably ongoing priestly sacrifices of Christ. That's what they believe the Mass to be. And and you can't in that system confess to or access God directly. You need a go-between guy in a booth. And this was something that in, in the Reformation, as, as they started looking at Scripture, they saw that in, in the Bible, they, and the Reformers recovered this concept of the priesthood of believers. This was a very significant recovery in the Reformation, this doctrine by sola scriptura, by Scripture alone. They, they saw that God's people are a kingdom of priests in the Old and New Testament. And it's not just a select few single men. All believers are priests. Women who are believers in Christ, young people who are believers in Christ are a part of this priesthood. And we don't need special clothes. We don't need the smells and bells and sounds. We don't need booths. All believers can confess to God and have access to God directly through Jesus, who is our high priest, through Jesus alone. And he was sacrificed once for all, once for all. And in the New Testament, his death fulfills 
the system in terms of its sacrifices and its ceremonies, all those things were pointing forward to him. He is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But what I want us to see here is even in the Old Testament, Exodus 19 is pointing us to that and ahead to that with all the people being brought to God It'll be later in Scripture that there will be consecrated sons of Aaron who would also have to be washed before they could serve and approach God's tabernacle later when all that's put together. They had to wash themselves, wash their clothes, be consecrated, and all of that. But here, Exodus 19.6 is first calling all Israel to be royal priests. All of them are to be consecrated. All of them are to be washed because all of them are going to be brought towards God, not just the Levites, not just the sons of Aaron, ages 30 through 50, all ages, all stages of life, all the people of God are being brought to approach him as later the priest would. Look at verse 16, the end of the verse, it says, all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people, this is all the people, out of the camp to meet God. This is all of them. And Moses had a unique role here, like the later high priest or mediator. But he's here being an example to Israel as to this is the type of role that they are to have to bring other people to meet God. This, this would be the unique role of God calling the Jews to the Gentiles that they would be bringing people to God on his terms because he's a holy God. And the world doesn't know how you can be with or approach this God. They were to give warnings of God's holiness. That he's not to be treated lightly. You cannot just approach him the way you think. And Moses would later write this priestly blessing for the sons of Aaron to say to the people, The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord shine his face upon you. That's number six. But God also always had a, what I call a multi-ethnic family plan. And, and Psalm 67 expands the very language of that blessing with this, where they're praying, be gracious to us, Lord, and bless us and keep us and cause your face to shine upon us so that your way would be made known to all the earth, that your salvation would be known among all the peoples. Let the nations be glad, they say there. Let the peoples rejoice and sing for joy. Let all the peoples praise you. God blesses us, they say in Psalm 67, so that all the ends of the earth may fear him. They understood that that's what was being established there. This blessing was for the nations, that the nations would be glad. It was never just about the people of Israel. It was always for all the peoples of the world, but that was to be their mission. Since Genesis 12, verse 3, where we have that statement, God says, in you, and these are the descendants of Abraham, all the nations of the earth are to be blessed. They're to be blessed with Israel. That's Genesis 12. Then Genesis 14 shows us that Gentiles can be royal priests too. Melchizedek was both a royal person, a king, and he was also a priest of the Most High. 
God. It would be in later law that only certain Jewish priests would offer sacrifices, but for thousands of years before that, Gentiles were offering sacrifices in a priestly way acceptable to God, beginning with Abel and Noah and think of Job even in that same era. And let's remember also that the people who were at the foot of Mount Sinai here include non-Israelites. So Exodus 12 says, when they went out, there were 600,000 of the sons of Israel and a mixed multitude also went with them. There were some Egyptians who had begun to fear the Lord in this and probably some other Africans and others who would have been parts of the mixed ethnicities of multitudes in Egypt. They went out with them. They became followers of this Lord too. That's Exodus 12 verse 38. Father Abraham had many sons, including some who had none of his DNA. And the priesthood of believers is not just for ethnic Israel. So remember that. In the people who are gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, it's not just Jewish people. It's believers in Yahweh. And even in the Old Testament, this whole concept is connected with Christ Because Isaiah prophesied a Messiah would come and he would sprinkle many nations. That's what a a priest would do for the nation of Israel. And then in the, the coming kingdom of Christ, God said in Isaiah 66, 19, coastlands far away that have not heard my fame, that have not seen my glory, they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. That's priestly language. They're going to bring them to the Lord like an offering to my holy mountain, just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings. And he says, some of them, some of the nations also, I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. So just like the Israelites brought their offerings, some from other nations will be brought to be priests and Levites, including those coastlands far away. That would be us. We're we're on a coast far away from what happened in Bible times. We're part of that promise of his glory to the nations. This is our mission. Sounds to me like Romans 11. God grafting us in. All Israel will be saved with the fullness of Gentiles. And then at the end of that, he says... For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We should long to see more and more of the world coming to the Lord. And Isaiah 61 promised Gentiles with Jews in verse 5. And it says this in verse 6. You shall be called the priests of the Lord and they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. And so the priesthood of all believers is linked there with the ministry of all believers. And Isaiah 61 begins with that prophecy that Jesus quoted in Luke 4, in Nazareth. He says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one that Isaiah 61 is talking about. And he's the one who makes us priests, Revelation 1 says. He makes us priests, but when you have the idea of priests, don't think... uh, a pastor. Don't think a, a clergy member. Member, God calls people to be pastors, certain ones, but he calls all of us to be priests. And I think even in Exodus 19, 7, we see Moses calling for the elders, and he is giving God's message to give to all the people. 
There's this role even in those days of leading and speaking formally that that the elders to the congregation, and just practically there's so many people that there had to be different spokesmen to go out and to give this message to the congregation. And so the priesthood of believers in verse 6 doesn't negate the place of leaders in verse 7. And even later in Scripture, the, the role of pastor, elder is limited to men, but priestly ministry is for all. And when you think of priests, don't, also don't think of animal sacrifices in a holy place. Here's what 1 Peter 2, 5 says, that we're to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes in verse 9 to say, you are a royal priesthood. And he says this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's part of what it was to be a priest to proclaim the excellencies of your holy God. Here's what my study Bible note says about Old Testament and New Testament priests. Old Testament priests and New Testament believer priests share a number of characteristics. They're both to be cleansed of sins. They're both anointed for service. But First John says we're anointed by the Holy Spirit, not by a special water. Priests are prepared for service. Priests are to honor the Word of God. This is what all of us are to do. Priests are to walk with God. Priests are to impact sinners. Priests are then and now to be messengers for God. The main privilege of a priest, however it says, is access to God. And so when Peter talks about spiritual sacrifices, this would include offering ourselves, as Romans 12, 1 says, as a what kind of sacrifice? A living sacrifice. We're offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. That's priestly language. Praising God. In in Hebrews 13, it talks about as we praise God, as we do good works, as we are thankful, as we share our resources with others. That's what priests did. That's what we're to do as we bring people to Christ. Paul talked about his ministry in Romans about bringing people to Christ as his priestly ministry. And also sacrificing one's desires for the good of others. Praying, interceding for the people. Those are all things that priests did that we are all called to do in the New Testament. And so we don't bring physical offerings anymore. We don't, we don't bring lambs to worship. But we are called to, to give financial offerings. And really we do that to the Lamb of God, Jesus. We, we, we don't need to go to a confessional place. We can confess to God in any place, but we're also called, James 5.16, to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's not limited to a a leader or an elite believer. We should have people in our lives that we can confess our sins to, ask them to pray for us, that we can be healed. And certainly those we sin against, we should be regularly asking their Forgiveness. I've been struck by this whole concept, how big this is in Scripture, reading a a book called The Royal Priesthood and the Glory of God. It's one of those short studies in biblical theology series. But it, it sums up really Genesis to Revelation, this concept of priests who are instructing, interceding, serving, and guarding God's house and his people. That this is one of the 
big themes of the Bible maybe we don't think about. Here's what the book says. God's story of royal priesthood is larger than any theater can capture. Indeed, only the entire cosmos in all of human history is able to reflect the glory of the royal priesthood that God is establishing in Christ. This priestly narrative covers the entire Bible and its drama repeats every time churches gather. Whether or not they think of themselves as priests, their actions identify who they are in worshiping God and serving one another in sanctifying God's house with prayer and church discipline and baptism and the Lord's table in offering praise and speaking the word to one another and seeking to bless outsiders and the nations with the gospel. These are all things that priests do in Scripture, and that takes us to the second part of our message, and that is God's call to be, wow, God's call to be holy as He is. God's call to be holy as we, as we, there we go. (laughs) Be consecrated is the first part. Exodus 19.10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. This is the root word we get the word holy from in the Old Testament. It's, let me read you another verse, Leviticus eleven forty four. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, God says, and be holy, for I am holy. So this has to do with God's holiness, this consecration, to be holy as he is. It takes time to be holy, doesn't it? We need to pray often to the Lord. We need to spend time in His Holy Word. To consecrate is to, to dedicate as holy to God. It's, it has the idea of purifying or sanctifying. Setting apart for common use. We sing the hymn sometimes, Take my life and let it be consecrated. Lord, to Thee, take my moments, my days, my lips, my voice, my hands, my feet, my silver, my gold, my will, my heart. Take all of that, Lord. Consecrated everything. But I want you to notice, and there's kind of a tension here because we, we realize we need to be consecrated. And, and it actually says that Moses is called to go to the people and Consecrate them in verse 10. And then later it says, Moses went and consecrated the people. And I think we need to think about how in the New Testament, first of all, Moses is the, has that role of mediator and high priest, but in the New Testament, Jesus is our mediator. He is our high priest now. And this is what he prays in John 17 for us. I consecrate myself, Jesus says, that they may also be sanctified. And he prays this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So it's God's word that sanctifies us. The, The ministry of Christ is essential for us to be sanctified, even though there's a responsibility we have in our sanctification. We can't do it apart from Christ or his word. His word is what consecrates. His word sanctifies when Paul's telling husbands to love your wives as Christ loves the church, he says, as, as he gave himself up for the church, that he might 
sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's not talking about H2O. That's the symbolism of when his word is being brought to bear, it sanctifies us, it washes us, it cleanses us. Regeneration, the washing of regeneration is one time, but our our sanctification, our continual cleansing is, is ongoing, our growth and holiness. And so we've got to be consecrated, but we also have to be, the next one is cleansed. So be cleansed, be consecrated, and then be cleansed. Look at verse 10 in the middle of that. Let them wash their garments, he says in the middle of verse 10. Then verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Moses is going to write later about washing garments, how that's connected with a purifying, cleansing from sin. Let me read Numbers 8, 21. The Levites purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And then after that, they went to serve the Lord. So this isn't just about hygiene or, or sanitation. This is about Holiness. This is about symbolic purification. They needed washed clothes to meet God. They needed atonement to cleanse them from sin. And the Old Testament would later call sinners to be washed. Like our, our sin leaves a stain like crimson or like scarlet, but we need to be washed of that sin. And he also was calling them not just to be washed of sin stain, but all. Also to abstain, in verse 15, he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Even the normal sexual relations of a man and wife are now set aside, along with their normal clothes needing to be made white. They can't just come just as they are. And God must supersede all relations in times like this undistracted devotion privately as well as publicly. They need to give undivided attention to God and what is about to take place here. And maybe some of you might wonder, how does verse 15 fit with other places in Scripture which celebrate the the love of a husband and wife? Proverbs 5.18 says, Let your wife, speaking of her body, fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love, or the New Testament honors the marriage bed, says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. It says in verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, and I think this is a parallel here, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come again together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Exodus 19 is one of those times, mutually putting the spiritual above the physical. But we need to also say God's word is not against sexual relations between a husband and wife. God's word celebrates the the wonderful, beautiful relationship. It's God's wedding gift in a, a marriage as defined biblically. Here's what our church, what we teach statement says about marriage. Marriage 
is defined as sanctioned by God, joining one man and one woman, and we have to say this today, one man and one woman as created by God in a single exclusive union in a public, formal, and officially recognized covenant, and it's to picture Christ and his bride, the church. We teach that God designs sexual intimacy to only occur between a man and a woman who are married to each other, and that departures from God's design are sinful, including adultery, fornication, homosexual, and other conduct, incest, pornography, and all those things. We teach that while these and other sins are offensive to God, there is redemption and there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ for all who confess and forsake their sin to follow Christ. And we teach that every sinner in Christ is a new creation. They're not defined by those things in the past. And, and in the next chapter, we'll, we'll look more when he says, you shall not commit adultery, all that that entails. But we need to also remember 1 Corinthians 6, 9, lists those sins, and then it adds this, neither idolaters, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, that means unrepentant in those sins, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, such were some of you. In that church there, there were some people who had been involved in all those things and sexually in other ways. Such were some of you. But he says that you were that. That's not who you are now. That doesn't define you. He says you have been washed. You have been sanctified. Same language from Exodus. You've been consecrated. You've been cleansed when you turn from those things. You have a new identity now as God's people. Even as Israel cleansed their bodies and washed their garments with water, the New Testament says to the church in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So this kind of language is very applicable to us in the New Testament as well. And even it's good to remember David committed not only adultery, he committed, he conspired to murder the husband of the man he had committed adultery with. But he prayed. I think he understood what was being talked about in Exodus 19. Because listen to how he prayed. This is in Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly from my sin. Cleanse me from my iniquity. Purge me with hyssop. That comes out of Exodus from the, the Passover, blood of the lamb. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Created me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's what we need to pray. And there's great cleansing and washing and consecrating that can come through God who can actually give you that new heart, can renew your spirit within you. New Testament says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to, what else? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we truly confess and repent, we have that great promise. And I just noticed this week, 1 John 1, 7, right before that says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We've got to be walking in the light. He's in the light. We need to bring our sin out to the light, confess to God and others where appropriate, 
But there's this concept of having fellowship, being in close fellowship with other believers who can help us in that as we walk together. That's part of what keeps us cleansed, is being close with other believers. We need the church. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near, Corey read this earlier, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And he talks about being washed with pure water. And then he goes on to to talk about how we need to gather here. Let us consider how we might spur one another towards love and good deeds, not neglecting the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as we see that day drawing near. So again, the implication is we need to be cleansed, but we need to be not forsaking the assembling. It's important for us to be with God's people to encourage them. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And that takes us to the last point here. He is coming. They knew there was three days before he would actually come. In verse 9. I mean, imagine that. This is God is now, for the first time since the beginning of the Bible, God in his glory in this way is now coming down to earth again. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. It needed to be a thick cloud because they couldn't see him in his glory and live. But he says, verse 11, and be ready. You need to be ready. You can't meet. This is not a a light thing. You can't be trite about what's about to happen here. It says, on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day. So he hasn't even showed up yet, but they wake up to thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. This is no human shofar. This is a very loud trumpet blast from heaven, maybe an archangel. We'll look at his coming next time, but this is, we've got to take our time looking at God coming down. This is holy God coming down to the mountain for all Israel to see. He's the coming king before whom all kings and nations Tremble at his voice. We sang about that earlier. They're, they're about to behold our God. It is deadly if you are not ready when he comes. Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready if you were to be ushered out of this life unexpectedly by an accident? Are you ready? To meet this God. This would not be the last time that Moses would see his glory come in a cloud or hear a thundering voice on a mountain. So this is huge what's happening here, but this would not be the last time. And, and I'm not just talking about in Moses' lifetime. Actually, beyond his lifetime. 1,500 years later, Moses and Elijah appear in glory with Jesus on a mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. I want you to think about this. This has just struck me. Moses is again on a mount 
talking with his Lord. And this is what Luke 9.31 says those three spoke of. So Peter, James, and John are back there. Peter's mumbling some incoherent things. But he says they spoke of Christ's departure. And the word in the Greek language there is exodus. They spoke of Christ's exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Moses, who knows something about Exodus, he wrote the book, right? He's there and he's talking and he's in some form from from glory that they can recognize. I don't know if they, they could tell what he looked like, but maybe he's saying Moses and Elijah. So they know, wow, this is Moses and Elijah he's talking to. But the three of them are talking about Christ's exodus that he's about to do in Jerusalem. And then it says this, a cloud came, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And and the disciples were very afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken and the cloud went away, Jesus was alone. So there's Moses. They had heard from Moses all their life. And in Elijah, they'd heard those wonderful stories, but this cloud again comes down to the mount. It's a terrifying cloud. This mighty voice speaks, this is my son. Listen to him. And, and then they're gone to say, this is my final revelation now. This is the one you need to listen to now. And the gospel writers say this one was white as the light. His garments said of Jesus, were exceedingly white, whiter than any launderer on earth could wash them or whiten them. There's no whiteness you've ever seen like this whiteness. And it says at God's voice, they became terrified. They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. That's still the response that we should have. As believers in Jesus, when we see and understand who this Holy One is. So we've got Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration talking with Jesus about his exodus that is coming. There's another exodus. There's another deliverance from slavery that's about to happen for his people in his death and his resurrection. There's another exodus. There's another thick cloud. There's another trembling His garments, like no other, have been washed white like no one can. And it's only in him that man can see God and live. And that thundering voice says from heaven, this is my son. Hear him. That's a preview of coming glory. I love that. But his full glory is going to come on another mount, on another time. Listen to Zechariah 14. The Lord my God will come. And all his holy ones with him. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. And the Lord God will be king over all the earth. The book of Revelation talks a lot about that. And there's a lot of thundering. There's a lot of trembling happening before that day. Jesus said this at the second coming. All the earth will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. 
He's going to come in a cloud with power and great glory as the lightning comes. Remember there was lightning back in Exodus? As the lightning comes, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And he will send out his angels, Jesus said in Matthew 24. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from one end of heaven to the other. He said, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You need to be ready. Jesus told several stories about how we need to be ready. Are you ready? And whether it's that day when he returns in the clouds or the day when you get ushered into his presence, are you ready? In a room this size, it's likely that there are people this year, they're going to be ushered to meet their maker. Some people know it's coming, but a lot of people don't know that day is going to be their last day. Are you ready? to meet your maker. He is coming. The way to be ready is by trusting Christ alone. Looking to him to consecrate us, to cleanse us. But we want to be serving him when he comes. We want to be his holy priest as well. We're all going to meet him, either in death or on that day. The only way to be ready is by trusting Christ alone to save you when he shall come with trumpet sound may i may you in then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone let me pray our god we thank you that there is a way that we can stand But it's not in ourselves or anything we've done. It's on Christ, the solid rock, what he's done, his righteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be ready. For any here who are not yet ready to meet you, Lord, that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That they would, even before they leave here, speak to those who know the Lord. That they would be ready by trusting him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.